emergency first aid for waterlogged lawns, combating plastic pollution, and the big question of the day, can you stop cats using your borders as a toilet? All this and more coming up in today's RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Davison, Head of Libraries and Exhibitions, and I'm based here in the RHS headquarters at Vincent Square, a lovely historic but slightly echoey wood-panelled rooms. Now first off, investment. As a charity, we're committed to inspiring everyone to grow and helping people all over the UK learn more about gardens and gardening. And to support this, in 2015, we began an enormous nationwide investment programme that's aimed at enriching people's lives, investing in education and research, and improving and future-proofing our gardens and collections. This includes our libraries and exhibitions, and we're really looking forward to getting new exhibition centres across the country. Three years on, Sue Biggs, Director General of the RHS, met up with garden designer, TV presenter and RHS council member, James Alexander Sinclair, to discuss how this exciting project is progressing. Everybody who has read the garden or has visited Mm. any of our gardens or been to a show in the last year or so knows that there is an awful lot going on in the (laughs) RHS. There is indeed. What is happening at Wisley? The whole place is full of builders and bulldozers. I know, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, we started the whole investment programme in 2014, but Wisley, as everyone knows, is our flagship garden, and we're in the middle of creating an amazing new welcome building. So it's very exciting, and as you say, lots of stuff. So what was wrong with the old welcome building? It wasn't big enough for the number of visitors we now have, so it was built for around half a million visitors here to Wisley, and now, I mean, I'm delighted to say in many ways that we have over 1.1 million visitors last year so we really need to build an infrastructure that's right for our visitors to Wisley. And this is new restaurants, new loos, new plant centres, new everything? Well it's going to be a most amazing plant centre. I mean really very exciting of us being able to support British specialist nurseries to be able to have all the ranges that we can actually do to tempt you whether it's shade, it's damp, it's whatever conditions. Mm-hmm. Really great display area that's going to be substantially larger than the last one. But on top of that it'll be the bookshop will be there, everyone knows our great horticultural bookshop new cafe much larger than our current one and a fantastic new restaurant so it's really exciting as far as the welcome building itself is concerned although it's a building as we just talked about most of it is about horticulture whether it's outdoor plants whether it's house plants whether it's gardening books whether it's gardening tools so even though yes it is a lot of money to build these buildings the benefit is for the people who visit and for the people who actually see what's going on as a result of the work our staff our students our apprentices do here Everybody can benefit from the gardening advice of our advisory team that are based here at Wisley. Everybody can benefit from the advice that is on our website. Mm. It's our remit to tell as many people as we can about growing and horticulture. And then stage two or three or four or five, I've slightly lost count, at Wisley is (laughs) to build the science building, which is the next. Yes, oh, we start on that fairly soon. So we open the welcome building and that will be next March. Maybe the last day of March. Maybe March the 31st at nine o'clock at night, but we will be open. And as you say, that's that's really exciting. So um, tell me exactly what is going to happen in this building. Well, it's quite surprising, really, I think. In our whole country, there is no National Centre for Horticultural Science and Learning. So this is going to be the first time that all of our scientists in all the different disciplines that we are will all be in one place together. Okay, just, just, those of us who are not scientists yes. sometimes find science a little baffling. Yes. So, so what are the disciplines that we are world-class at? Well, I think if we go into the detail of it, I mean, I just scraped biology O-level, so I... <laughs> 
can sympathise with failed, you. <laughs> so I sympathise with you. But really, the areas that we're, we're really focusing on, it's all about climate change and the different extreme weather conditions and how gardeners can cope with it better. The pests and diseases size is really important. All the soil work, we're doing our best and everyone else to get away from using peat mm -hmm. and different media, different soil that the gardeners can grow in. And then on the entomology side, if we're looking at insects and the pollinators. So that's just some of the areas that we work in, as well as protecting and conserving for future generations. So, for example, at the new hilltop building, we'll move our herbarium, which is where all of the dried specimens of cultivated plants are preserved for future generations. I mean, not only are they beautiful, but they're important. So that's going to be a whole new herbarium up there in hilltop, new research laboratories, because although the laboratory here at Wisley is a wonderful Grade two listed, arts and crafts building, and it is beautiful, but it really isn't for 21st century <laughs> science. And so this new, really top of the range, really world-class scientific research laboratories where our scientists can work to really help gardeners of the future. So they will move out of this laboratory and move up in 2020 into the new National Centre for Horticultural Science and, and Learning. this will be a clean, modern building. Yeah, a beautiful modern building. And it will sit well amongst the sort of historic landscape that we have here. There's certainly a lot of glass, glass and zinc. Uh, yes, all the buildings we talk about at any of our gardens will be surrounded by beautiful new gardens. And there are three incredible gardens coming around the New Science and Learning Centre. And those are really exciting. You know, they're from top class designers, three separate gardens, one devoted to health and well-being, one is the garden as a nature reserve, and one is an edible world kitchen garden. So people who come to Wisley because they love gardening and plants mm -hmm. will have so many exciting things, both to see at front of house, but also up at Hilltop with these three new gardens. Wisley obviously is not our only garden. No. And we've got exciting things happening at Hyde Hall too. Really exciting at Hyde Hall, which was in many ways our, our quietest, most undeveloped garden, right there in the, the rural heart of Essex. We'd already done some of the work last year on the front of house there, the entrance, the welcome to Hyde Hall. But what's really exciting of what's opening is a new learning centre, a new events building, a new restaurant, and new gardens all around it. It just is looking beautiful. So I can't wait for that to open in June. Yeah. And then obviously Bridgewater. Yeah. Coming along. That's a very exciting project. With all the projects we're doing as part of this £160 million programme, every time I talk about one, I think, no, this is the most exciting. But I, I think if I was being totally, totally objective, I think Bridgewater has to be really because it moves us to, into a new part of the country in the northwest of England, in Salford. They've been amazing partners to work with, both Salford Council and also Peel, the triumvirate that came together to enable this garden to happen. And it's 154 acres that will open in 2020 of this fabulous new garden. And right at its very heart is an 11-acre wall garden. And it'll be for ornamental horticulture, it'll be for food there. It's going to be a really wonderful addition, and most important of all, it's for the local community. So already we have local community volunteers helping us clear all the saplings away at Bridgewater. They're already telling us what they'd like to see happen there. And so it really will be the first time the RHS, I think, has been able to create, hand in hand with our local partners, a garden for the 21st century up in the northwest. Where did that idea come from? I mean, you know, the Irish has been bumbling along for a hundred and something years quite happily, just doing, doing shows in the gardens, and then suddenly everything begins to change. Where did the idea and the inspiration for that happen? Well, I think it, it, was, it was fundamentally from taking a look at what we were doing and our past track record and, you know, 
to be honest, we had a fair amount in reserves in, in the bank and really taking a look at it when I first came to the RHS, we really all decided between the executive and our council, our trustees, that really we should make a difference with this. You know, we're not there to be a bank, we're there to invest the money that we've made. So we started smaller. I think our first programme was 27 million. <laughs> then it grew to 100 million and now it's 160 million to really make sure that everybody around the whole country benefits from this massive step change mm -hmm. for horticulture, for the society and for this country. And, you know, whether you're going to benefit from visiting one of our then five gardens, or it's that you're going to benefit from our investment in community outreach projects, or benefiting from our investment in digitisation, so that people can see so much online of all the work that we're doing, mm -hmm. through our scientists, through our gardeners, through our art collections, and all the things that we get involved in, or through schools all over the country, or partner gardens all over the country. We really are trying to create, with this investment, a horticultural network in Britain that really does enable us to enrich everyone's life through plants and make the UK literally a greener and more beautiful place. That was Sue Biggs talking to James Alexander Sinclair. You can find links to more information, images and plans for the redevelopment programme, including plans for RHS Bridgewater, at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. On this page, you'll also find links to all the other items and topics in the podcast, including lots of things to see and do in the coming weeks. If you fancy being part of the podcast, why not visit us at Chatsworth Flower Show on Wednesday the 6th of June? We'll be doing a live question and answer session with RHS advisors and well-known gardening experts. And don't forget, if you're an RHS member, tickets are cheaper and you can get priority access to all our flower shows. See rhs.org.uk slash join for more info. Now, regular listeners might recall me mentioning in the last podcast our new exhibition at the library, Rethinking Repton, opens today. If you happen to be in the London area, May the 18th is Worldwide Botanical Art Day. And here at the Lindley Library, we'll have a slideshow of over 900 beautiful botanical artworks of native flora from across the globe. Throughout the year, our advisory team receive inquiries from members about a wide variety of gardening issues. Everything from pests and diseases to easygoing plants for difficult places. The podcast team join the advisors each month to hear some of the problems they've been solving. I'm Guy Barter. I rejoice in the title of Chief Horticulturist. Today we're here at RHS Gardens Wisley and I'm, in, I'm with two colleagues who work in the advice team. Rebecca Mealy and Esther McMillan. Both of whom are deep experts in their field and they are going to join me today and answer some, some questions that have been sent in. But before we kick off, I'm going to ask Rebecca... What are you particularly enjoying growing at the moment in your garden? Well, actually, it's not in the garden. I'm really getting into my houseplants. So houseplants are very on trend at the moment. And for my birthday present, I've requested money so I can buy lots of nice pots for everything that looks very look funky in. So everything's got a bit of a repot and my houseplants don't know they're born. They're like, wow, what's what she do? she's actually like taking notice of us. I'm like, yeah, I'm really getting into this. And Esther, is there anything you're particularly um, keen and uh, satisfied with growing at the moment? I'm just desperate to catch up, actually, this time of year after all the rain and, yeah, assessing what's got through the winter and um, trying to, to get things sown once the, the soil dries out on the allotment. This came from a Miss Kelly and she's asking, with the RHS flower show season beginning, which are the best ones to shop at? A strange question, perhaps, but I always end up buying my plants too early and carting them round all day. Or should I be taking notes and photos and ordering online when I get home? 
I'd say Hampton Court and Tatton are the best ones for buying at and obviously Chatsworth. But you have to remember there is a tent where you can stash your plants and you can get um, a, a little ticket so you can go back and collect your plants later. Uh, um, so yeah, now my myself and my friends go to Hampton Court and a gaggle of us on a Sunday. And we come back with lots of many plants that we've brought and, you know, carried around and things. So your advice is buy lots and buy early. Well, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's difficult because obviously you can be inspired by the gardens as well. Um, but the problem is, is sometimes if you're buying in the middle of the summer, you might not be planting them at the best time for them to, to grow. So sometimes it's a case of taking note and looking but if you see a really good decent plant that you know will be happy in the pot until it's the autumn to plant then that's fine so it's it's, it's being guided by the quality and what you see but then you might see a, um, a nursery that you know you're never going to come across anywhere else so you get there and then also the bargains they have at the shows so i mean like um recently i was at cardiff and, and I, had, I got a bargain with um some herbs and so, yeah, six herbs for a tenner. So you can't you can't go wrong with that. The shows have some really specialist nurseries, so they open up your um, your mind and your pocket to possibilities. Um, I'd also say that the flower shows that are held at the gardens are good because they often have local nurseries. Now, the next question, and I think this is one for you, Esther. Um, a person called P Rice has emailed in to say, "What's the best method for composting on a balcony?" Or is it better to use municipal recycling instead of doing it myself? Esther, what do you think? Well, in this age of very often having to pay to send your recycling uh, to be composted, it is rather galling not to do your own. The trouble is the size, perhaps, of the balcony and what's realistic, not only in what you have to put in any composting, but also what you're going to do with it afterwards. So there are various systems like wormeries and then fermenting systems where you, you can put your kitchen waste, which I presume will be the bulk of what you are wishing to, to recycle, but it may not be suitable for spreading on your, on your pots on your balcony. So are you going to buy a specialised system like a wormery or a fermenter? So what you really need on a balcony is some sort of small-scale method of recycling, and obviously one that isn't too fragrant either. There are fermenting systems, I think they're called bokashi, but the produce from those, the, the end result isn't suitable for putting on your pots if that's what you grow on your balcony. Obviously, there are, are wormeries that you can put your kitchen scraps in. A wormery is a system that where you feed your kitchen scraps into a colony of worms and the end result of that is a liquid feed that you could use on your pots so that would be very useful on your balcony and also a, a, a crumbly medium as well that you could incorporate in your potting compost so that produces more of a finished product than that you can use than the um, the fermenting process. It's like one part to ten for watering onto your pots and um, with the worm juice um, but there's, there's certain things that you can't put in there like it, it's like citrus takes a while for them to break down um, and then you have to make sure they don't dry out they don't get too wet they don't get too hot it's just finding the right space for them to live on your balcony. From what you're saying it's going to really going to be better to go through the municipal recycling and I think that that would be a wise choice because also um, municipal recycling is done in a way that doesn't produce methane, which often home composting does, particularly if you haven't got much space. 
and that is a potent greenhouse gas itself. So I think on balance, unless you're determined um, to do it yourself or you're feeling lonely and need the company of worms, then um, I think you might have to avail yourself of the council's services. A cat question, that should suit you, Esther. Being a cat person, would you like to read it out? Oh, yes. So, uh, Mrs Widger writes an email. What plants will deter cats from pooing in my borders? I don't want to poison them, just ward them off. Well, I can tell you from experience that virtually nothing stops my cats from using my beds and borders and containers for lavatorial purposes. Um, I have bought a plant called Coleus canina. Um, Coleus canina is a kind of succulent plant and it has a distinctly um, fearsome pong. And uh, it seems to me that uh, my cats, at any rate, do steer clear of it. Uh, but unfortunately, it's a tender plant and keeps the cats off during the, the summer. Uh, it's quite a pretty plant, and if you buy one, it's ever so easy to propagate. So the next question is, what should the lady not plant if she's keen not to harm these cats? Well, lilies are one of the big ones, and it's because of the lily pollen getting on the, the fur of the cat and then, then obviously the, the cat cleaning itself and that uh, ingestion. I think it's, it causes um, kidney failure, doesn't it, or something horrible for them. Um, there is actually an extensive list on the cat protection website that you can go on to and find. And, and it's basically just going through what plants you've got in your garden and what actually could be a problem. Most cats leave things alone, but you do get the odd crazy cat that decides that it's going to take a nibble out of something that it shouldn't. Most cats outdoors have got a fair amount of catty sense and don't go gnawing on things. But cats that are kept indoors, um, they get bored, they haven't any access to any greenery, and that's when they can start taking bites out of houseplants and nibbling on lilies. So uh, that's something to bear in mind. If your cat is an indoor cat, then you need to be a lot more careful than if it's an outdoor cat. Well, the next question is from a B. Nielsen who lives in London. And they say, my kids have worn big muddy patches in my lawn playing football on it when it was waterlogged. And after all, it has been the wettest March. I think I've made mowed it a bit too early as well, before the last patch of rain. How can I repair it, please? Well, repairing a worn lawn um, at this time of year, what do you think, Becky? So I definitely think scarification, just kind of raking it up, with, so keep it, raking the area to remove any thatch that's there um, and or dead grass. Then also aeration, so spiking it. And you, sometimes it's actually better to invest and actually go and get an aerator from um, a kit shop and hire one. So what is this aerator? So an aerator, basically stabbing lots of little holes to help with the drainage of the lawn. But also what it does is it it stimulates the growth of the roots. Um, so by that breaking of the roots, um, it makes them fibre up and makes the, the lawn that is there grow thicker. Now, he did say specifically um, bear patches. What are you going to do about bear patches, Esther? Well, I, I'd say keep off the lawn till it dries out. Um, we've had a few more bits of rain, so... Following on from what Becky says, once you've put your tines in there and made these little holes, you can then fill those holes with a top dressing or a sand, which is mixed with some compost, and then over-sow with grass seed. Any particular grass seed, would you think, for this situation? Uh, quite a coarse grass if you've got uh, children playing football. <laughs> would you think that um, rye grass would be a suitable material? That's the one material? to choose. Yeah. 
it seems to me, and um, as a, a mother, Rebecca, you might be the best person to answer this. If you've got a garden um, that is being hammered by children, will you never be able to get rid of bare patches? Pretty much. There's, there's, you're always going to have, and there's always, and you know, and it, you just always have the old bare patch and daisies, but they're fun, you know, daisy chains. You've got, you know, but yeah, um, my daughter's got a very nice swing in the, in the garden, and there's always a little bare patch underneath the swing. So this is Robert Jones and he's emailed in. Several of my shrubs are looking very sad after sitting in puddles in my waterlogged clay soil. I'm in Essex. It's very clay in Essex. My two bottle brush plants are looking especially miserable with browning leaves. Is there any hope for them? How can I help the garden avoid the same problem next year if the weather is like 2018? I have actually seen quite a lot of brown bottle brush plants this spring and the two things occur to me. Uh, one is that they could have got caught by the sudden sharp cold weather in March, in which case they would have gone brown then. Or it could be that their roots have come to a sticky end in the waterlogged soil and as a result they are finished. Their roots are dead. With no roots a plant can't survive. If it was the frost they might regrow so it's probably not a good idea to be in too much of a hurry to, to whip them out but it is possibly not the best soil for bottle brushes they tend to prefer a different kind of environment don't they Esther? Bottle brushes is the common name for a calistemon and as they hail from Australia they're more uh, suited to well draining conditions sunny conditions and they're not bone hardy so they will have had a tough time this winter um, it's ironic really isn't it because we think of the east of England as being dry counties so that's why you probably thought that the bottle brush would be happy at your house it's the time of year where we are looking at things and wondering which way they'll go. They've suffered some winter damage, either, as you say, through water logging or through through the cold. So we're looking for signs of life and, and perhaps giving them another month to see if they are going to come into leaf. So it's a, it is a, a little bit of will it, won't it time of year uh, of whether something will recover. Um, we've seen things like um, Ceanothus, the lovely blue flowered shrub, uh, looking worse for wear. And people are asking, you know, will they survive? So perhaps give them give them a little longer and uh, they'll have made their decision by then. Yeah, I, I always say give it to the end of May. And then usually by then you probably might have a, a little bit of green shoots. Um, you can, I mean, they don't respond very well to a good hard prune back um, to calisthenum, but you, um, we had to do it to ours one year and, and it did re recover. Um, so we were very fortunate. But the, then sometimes it's just the case you just have to say goodbye and then just improve the site and, and get something more suitable for the area. One of the commonest um, things people are recommended is to scratch the bark, isn't it, Esther? Is that a, a useful thing to do to find out if something's alive or dead? I think it's a, a good way as well of finding out which point to prune back to. So despite all your hopes, if it's brown underneath the, the bark when you scratch it with a fingernail, it's never going to spring into life again. So you can prune it out. So that's where I'd find the juncture between the, the live material and, and what's been caught by the cold. Our garden at Rosemore in Devon has a prodigious rainfall there and it's very heavy clay soil. So what our gardeners at Rosemore do is they lay a thick mulch of coarse bark around plants and that provides a, coarse, a sort of 
well aerated environment between the sky and the and the water that uh, allows plants to survive so that's one of the um the, the tricks they have there they've also chosen plants that do well um in clay soil so have you what sort of plant to free top plants for clay soil i was also going to add about planting proud so having the the root ball a little bit above the actual soil layer so you have um an area that isn't actually you know the same level so that stays a little bit drier over wet winters so how much proud six feet four feet uh, so i i'd say just a couple of inches five centimeters and and that just allows that little bit bit of a breathing space if you like for the, the shrub so it's not got the whole entirety of its root ball sat at, um, at the water table and what plants would you suggest for a clay soil oh hydrangeas hydrangeas like a wet soil cornices as well the um, flowering cornice like cornus cusa iris sibirico that's one of my favorites i've got that in my front garden nice nice wet soil Given the intense media attention being given justifiably to the devastating effect of plastic pollution on our natural world, it's little wonder that this is one of the most popular subjects of inquiries this year. Harrowing pictures of floating islands of bottles and bags and of sea creatures poisoned by plastic waste really powerfully reinforce the importance of this issue. So what can we gardeners do to reduce our use of plastic and help combat the problem rather than contributing to it? We spoke to Chief Horticulturalist Guy Barter to learn more. Because of the recent publicity around the issue, more and more nurseries and garden centres say they're going to introduce schemes to recycle these pots or possibly even reuse them. On a nursery, pots are reused time after time, but once they go out into the retail market, it's hard for them to be gathered up and go back to where they came from. So every week we read about new initiatives and we hope it's going to continue and not just go away. But it still leaves the problem of people like me, who've got a large number of old pots in the shed, what to do with them. You can pass them on to other gardeners at our local allotment site. People put out their surplus pots. It's worth a go. There's other things that are particularly difficult, like fleece, for example. But of course, that fleece is dirty and there's no way of recycling it. Farmers who use fleece and plastic, because they can fill a lorry with it, they've got the option of recycling it. But little bits of hither and thither, there's no option, and yet we depend on fleece. It's either use fleece, for example, or use pesticides in some case to protect against onion fly or allium leaf miner. So there's some difficult questions to ask. I think when we're buying things, rather than buying fleece, think whether you can spend a little more and buy something that's got a longer life. For example, cloches, ideally glass cloches, but they're quite hard to, to come by. You mentioned compost bags. These, are, to the very best of my knowledge, are not recyclable, and one does end up with quite a lot of them. Certainly local stables around here will take them and they'll fill them with manure, which is then sold on to gardeners, but it's quite, it is quite hard to find a home for them. This year, as an experiment, I've bought some miscanthus cell trays that look very good. I've used the hairy pot that are made out of coir. They're excellent. They look a bit Heath Robinson-ish, much better than using toilet rolls or making pots out of newspaper. And there's also biodegradable paper pots that our team here use on the trials field. Uh, for example, they grew a lovely trial of sweet corn recently, which they raised in these paper pots, and they did excellently. So yeah, there's some excellent alternatives. Guy Barter. As before, you can find links to more information about gardening and the environment, plus all the other items in today's podcast, on our programme page. 
Well, that's all we've got time for today. We'll be back in a fortnight when we'll be getting excited about the Chelsea Flower Show and visiting the Royal Hospital grounds to speak to the designers, landscapers and planting teams as they install the stunning gardens for this year's Chelsea Flower Show. Remember, you can join in the latest garden conversations on our social media at the underscore RHS. Until the next time, from the podcast team and me, Fiona Davison, goodbye. <laughs>